do you guys think? Day of Judgment being sung in many churches this morning? Probably not. Those words, careless sinner, what shall then become of thee? You know, if man sinned and God damned men, it would be horrific for men and for women. But how much is added to that when those in hell are there with the realization that there was a Savior offered to men? While they lived and they had life and they breathed, there was eternal life being offered to them. Everything that was necessary to redeem sinners had been taken care of. It had been done. It had been finished. And yet, nevertheless, in the hellfires, they find themselves. What I want to look at today is the great basis for that redemption. As we've done, and I, I please bear with me if all of a sudden it looks like I've, I've lost my concentration, it's because I have. And uh, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at a text just in brief that we've looked at before. This is really Paul's opening thesis of the whole book of Romans. This, this is the heart of this epistle. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, or because, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I want to ask you a question about this verse. Paul gives a reason as to why he is not ashamed of the gospel. Can you tell me what it is? What is the reason that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel? He gives us a couple fours or becauses in there. It is the power of God for salvation. What's the second four? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of, right at the heart of the gospel of God is the righteousness of God. I want to show you two facts about this righteousness of God. First one, turn over in your Bibles to Romans 10.3. Romans 10.3. I don't want you to necessarily look at the whole context of what's being said right here, but just notice what Paul says very specifically about this righteousness. 
Romans 10.3, pick up right where it says the righteousness. You see that? The righteousness that comes from God. Now, quickly turn back to Romans 3. Romans 3.22, keeping in mind that Romans 10.3 says the righteousness that comes from God. Romans 3.22, again, we see the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Now, notice, with these two verses, Paul is talking about a righteousness that comes from God that is for all who believe. From God, for believers. This is important. This is a righteousness that is for humans. It is from God. It is supplied by God. It meets God's standard. But it is for men. It is a human righteousness. It is a righteousness that is given to men. That's why I call it a human righteousness. It's a righteousness given to men that meets God's standard. When we read about a righteousness of God, it's not of God in the sense that I'm looking at the attribute of God in His divine righteousness. I'm looking at an actual righteousness that has been procured for mankind that is of God's making. It's of God's standard. It's of God's requirement. And it's for believers. From Him, for us. A human righteousness. Now, this is how it is possible for God to view sinners as being righteous. The power of God could not be released through the Gospel unless there was a righteousness of God available that can be credited to the account of the sinner. And the question of the hour is, where does this righteousness come from? That is a hotly contested question these days. There are movements abroad in this land. Some that would claim sorts of titles as being reform-type churches. They would claim that they hold to the doctrines of grace. And they adamantly deny that this righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. We would say Jesus as a man actively obeyed His Father in our place to earn a human righteousness This is the righteousness of God for us. But others, they deny that. They deny that. There are those who say, no, the righteousness of God is not the righteousness of Christ. It's our faith. Maybe you've heard about these new perspectives on Paul. You don't need to study them. But that's that's at the heart of what they're teaching. You see, folks... And I'm going, to, I'm going to substantiate these things from Scripture. I'm just going to kind of lay out right here in the beginning. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ not only died and took upon Himself the curse in our stead for the sin that we committed, 
Because you see, the law of God did not only require that it not be broken. What was the full requirement of the law? The full requirement of the law was do this. Do this. You see, there's a positive and a negative aspect of what Christ accomplished for the sinner. On the one hand, He did pay the penalty for sin. He did allow God to pass over sin in us. The penalty was paid by Him. But the law not only demanded that it not be broken, the law demanded complete compliance. Jesus Christ lived a life of obedience to the Father all the way to the cross. He obeyed, as Philippians 2 says, He obeyed unto death. His obedience was full. His obedience was complete. It was thorough. And there are those today that would say, well, yes, we recognize that He died for our sins, but nowhere in the Scripture does it say that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as our righteousness. They deny that. You say, oh, is that that important? We even need it. Oh, folks. Christ is our all in all. He accomplished everything for us. And I'll tell you this. If you think you have a salvation that only completes the payment for sin and stops short of providing you a righteousness, then you fall short of salvation. You must have a perfect righteousness. You must have a record credited on your account of having kept the law of God perfectly to the uttermost and completely. Okay. That's by way of introduction. I think it's, it's important for us to do this. The righteousness of God is going to be very difficult for us to understand about the real necessity that we have of it unless we first understand what righteousness is. And I hope you are listening because there are some of you in this room that you don't have a righteousness in the sight of God. And there may be some of you that think you do, but you don't. This is what is absolutely necessary to be accepted of God. You must have this righteousness of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. But what we have to do before we can really deal with this matter is we need to determine biblically what does righteousness mean. So, turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 19.36. Go back in the Old Testament. And find Leviticus, third book in the Bible, chapter 19, verse 36. One thing I want you guys to realize is the word just and the word righteous are synonymous. We say justified. That means declare just or declare righteous. Just and righteous are synonymous terms, they're interchangeable terms. And here in the book of Leviticus 19.36, we find the word for righteous in our ESVs. It comes forth in the term just. You shall have just or righteous balances, just weights, 
a just ephah and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now the term just used here four times, like I said, is the word for righteous. Being just, being righteous is synonymous. They both mean basically the same thing. So let me ask you guys this. Based on the context here, what does just mean? What does it mean to have a just weight? Well, you guys can imagine this. They had scales. Now, if you came to the merchant, let's say it's a spice merchant, and you wanted to buy a pound of a certain spice, either you or he, probably he would. In fact, I think what probably happened is when you went to buy, you had one of your own. I'm thinking this might be the way it was. And when he brought out his to throw in one side of the scale, you might throw yours in the other side of the scale to make sure they're even. You're testing his weight by yours. Well, when he throws that weight out there, then he would throw the one pound of spice. But let's say you didn't have that weight. Let's say you had no way of really checking whether he was, he was actually putting one pound on there. He might have a weight that said... Now, of course, they didn't use pounds. I'm just saying that for your sake. But say it said one pound on it, but actually it wasn't one pound. It was about point nine nine tenths of a pound. And he would put that on there. It says it's a pound, and really, when you're all done and the thing is weighed out, you're not really getting a full pound. See, that's an unjust weight. The whole idea is that your weight meets the standard. It rises up to a certain specification. And that's the issue. Just in that sense is the idea of conformity to a standard. Well, that's what God said about weights and about the hen and about the ephah and about the scales. But of course, when it came to the covenant people of God in the Scriptures, the standard of conformity was what? What was the standard? The law. The law of God. Can we prove that from the Scriptures? Can we prove that righteousness in the Scriptures or just in the Scriptures basically equates to keeping the law of God? Absolutely we can. Turn in your Bibles now to Deuteronomy 6.25. You're very close. You just go past Numbers and into the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 25. And look at this verse. And it will be righteousness for us. What does it mean to be righteous? If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Do you see, under divine inspiration, what Moses lays before us as a definition of righteousness? Keeping the law of God. Now jump forward to the New Testament because I want, to, I want you to see that this isn't only an Old Testament definition of righteousness. We actually carry this definition right into the New Testament with us. Go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 6. Luke 
Luke chapter 1, verse 6. This is speaking of Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were both, what? Righteous before God. And how is that righteousness expressed? Walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Does this help drive home what the meaning of righteousness is? Now that's not to say that you won't find other shades of meaning behind the word. In, in many places that it's used. But what I am wanting to drive home, and I hope it's plain, is at least in the instances I've looked at, righteousness has to do with conformity to the divine will. The righteous man is the man who conforms to the law of God. It is fundamental and basic to the Lord has set His law before men, and He expects them to walk therein. Righteousness, in both these passages that we just looked at, is clearly tied to doing the commandments of the Lord. So if the Lord gives a righteousness to believers, the righteousness of God, what that means is He is imputing or accounting or reckoning to us, the believer, conformity to the standard. Conformity to the law of God. And my whole case here is, Jesus Christ is that standard. I mean, it's not just that He submitted to the standard. He is the standard. He did come, as Galatians said, He did come under the law. There's no question about it. But He's the lawgiver. He sets the standard. He is the standard. And Well, we'll, we'll develop this a little bit more. But, but realize that. This is what makes this message of the Gospel so precious. What belief in Jesus Christ gains for the sinner is absolute, full conformity to the law of God is reckoned to you. You haven't actually kept it, but because Christ did, it's accounted to you and now God views you as perfect as He views His own Son. That is at the heart of the Gospel message. The absolute heart. But, I want to emphasize that the word righteousness can describe a general righteousness or an absolute righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, consider this. In the text we just looked at, Luke 1.6, that most certainly describes a general righteousness. Wouldn't you agree with me? Not an absolute one. And you, Do you see where I'm going with that? Zachariah and Elizabeth, did they ever sin? How do we know that? Yeah, he's guilty of sin right in, right in the context. All had sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, is it an absolute perfect righteousness on the part of Zechariah or Elizabeth? No, it isn't. David, if you go back to the Psalms, he speaks about his righteousness. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Now, we know he had some sin in his life, do we not? That's, that's something that wasn't done in a corner somewhere and that no one knows about. We, we have the full record of it. It's been revealed to us. 
But our real concern in all of this doesn't have to do with the righteousness of Zechariah, the righteousness of David. What we're looking at is the righteousness of Christ. Now listen to me. If somebody came along and said, Oh, hey, Zechariah said to be righteous. David said to be righteous. I know both of them had sin. How do I know that even if Jesus Christ is called righteous, it's not just the general righteousness? How do I know there's not some little bit of sin in there somewhere? How can I be sure of that? Is his general or is it an absolute righteousness? Well, do we even know that he's righteous? Look with me at Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Go back to the major prophet portion of the Scriptures right after Isaiah. Jeremiah 23, 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. There is Jesus Christ prophesied of hundreds of years before He came. A righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In His days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which He will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah calls Jesus a righteous branch. So for starters, Jesus is righteous. That much we know for certain. Now what I want to ask you is this. Does Jeremiah mean a general righteousness like Zechariah and Elizabeth had? Or does Jeremiah mean to tell us that Jesus Christ was going to be perfectly sinless? How can we know? How do we know which one he means? Can you tell? You know, folks, by comparing Scripture with Scripture. We know by going other places in the Word of God and looking at at what is said there. Come with me, folks. Just a moment. And admire the righteousness of Christ. Oh, folks, it is a righteousness like no other. With you and I, the closer someone looks, the uglier they find us to be. You know, you may see somebody at a distance and they may appear very beautiful, but the closer you draw, the more you see the defects and the blemishes and the spots. But it's not that way with Christ. He is pure majesty and beauty. No matter how close you might examine Him, First John 3, 5 says, In Him there is no sin. As I laid on, on my bed the last three days and I've been trying to just contemplate the righteousness of Christ, God did visit me even in my sickness and reveal to me more of a clarity of of the beauty of the perfections of Christ. I don't think I can express them to you. I feel them, but I can't put it in words. But you just watch Him. Watch Him in all the accounts 
in the Gospels. Watch him as he heals. Watch him as he touches the leper. And you just hear the words of John echoing across. In him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. You watch him as he went up to be baptized. John says, no, no, you need to baptize me. He says, no. I need to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus Christ constantly fulfilled all righteousness. You hear the words of the writer of Hebrews, yet without sin. Judas forsook Him, yet there was no sin in Him. His disciples abandoned Him, yet He was without sin. They spit in His face, in Him is no sin. They plucked His beard. They blasphemed Him. They ridiculed Him. They mocked Him. They scourged Him. They crucified Him. Yet, all without sin. Peter says he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Hebrews 9.14 says he offered himself without blemish to God. Without blemish. You know, he told his disciples one day, the devil, the ruler of this world, he comes. He has nothing in me. No claim. Nothing. Jesus Christ, for 40 days, endured the temptation of the wicked one. And yet, without sin. You know, the enemies of Jesus Christ have tried to find fault with Him from the devil on down throughout the ages. They're not like Ahab we heard about last week who had a chink in his armor and somebody at random shot an arrow. There's no chink in Christ's armor. There's no cracks. There's no joints. There's no place for accusation to fall. Nothing. Oh, He is the perfect One. Christ ever perfect. I'm unable to fully speak about my perfect Master. But I can say this. It is unrivaled. It is unrivaled among men. Even the best of men. Absolutely perfect. There's none like Him. No, no defect. No deficiency. And folks, He sits there at the right hand of the Father. He is the righteous joy of His Father. All of His perfections shine in glory. Those saints that are already there, the angels, they find Him to be their ultimate delight. And folks, that's what He is to us too. Those of us that have been saved and redeemed, we find in Him our perfect righteousness. We as a church will defend until God scatters to the wind this doctrine of an imputed righteousness of Christ. He is our righteousness. Altogether lovely one. 
His incarnate perfection. But now, if you're still there in Jeremiah 23, I want you to notice something. In the last verse that we read, verse 6, it says, In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah says that this righteous branch will be called the Lord is our righteousness. You know what it doesn't say? It, listen, this is, this is key here. It doesn't say the Lord is righteous. He is. It doesn't say the Lord is righteousness. He is. But what does it say? The Lord is our righteousness. That's a possessive pronoun. That means our, mine. He is my righteousness. He is. There is personal possession. Now, now listen. If we take the definition of righteousness as conformity to the law of God, and you have the Lord is our righteousness... The Lord is our conformity to the law of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is Himself our conformity to the perfect will of God. He is our righteous standard. This makes the life and death of Jesus radically personal. He is my conformity to the law. If that's indeed what righteousness means, as we've looked at, then to say it's mine, means that Christ, in all of His conformity to God's will, that conformity to that standard of God is mine. Yes, amen. It is personally mine. I have it. Do you realize what that means? As God looks at me with all the foul, putrefying sin of my entire life, when God looks at me, perfect. I'm not only righteous, I am the righteousness of God. He sees me as Christ Himself. That is a tremendous truth. I want to try to tie all this together and bring a number of verses in before we end. Isaiah 53.11 Out of the anguish of His soul, He... That's God the Father shall see and be satisfied by His knowledge. A knowledge of Jesus Christ shall the righteous one who is Christ. By a knowledge of Him, of the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Do you see that? He's the righteous one, God's servant. And by a knowledge of Him, He will make many to be accounted righteous. Do you see what that says? It doesn't say that He's... What you have to grasp here is the word accounted. It's an accounting term. It doesn't mean that you actually are righteous. God justifies the ungodly. 
It means that it's credited to you. It, it's an accounting term. It's, it's a bookwork type of thing. You have a list of black in your book. Christ has a list of purity and perfection. Yours is fully stained. And that record is put to yours. Perfect law-keeping. Perfect conformity. And Jesus Christ had no need to work out a righteousness. He had no need to become a man. He had no need of being obedient to the Father. But He was. And He did. He didn't need that righteousness for Himself. He has a righteousness to give away. One which He does not need for... This is the root of the matter. He has a righteousness which He does not need for Himself and He therefore gives it to us and becomes the Lord our righteousness. And every soul to whom Jesus gives His righteousness is righteous at once. This is not a process. This is not something ongoing like sanctification. This is a once-for-all declaration of God. This is God's way of making men righteous. This is the righteousness of God. Not by their own deeds, but by the deeds of Jesus. He imputes to us what Christ has done. He takes the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and gives it to the sinner. Makes the sinner righteous in a moment. The text says, He shall do this to many. Not to all. For multitudes never receive this. And they die condemned. But to many. And what a blessed word of hope that ought to be to any one of you if you're right now in your sins. To many, He will give His righteousness and they will be accounted righteous. To many. And how does that happen? It says there, by His knowledge or through a knowledge of Him. If you're here and you wonder, well, how do I come about this righteousness? How do I get it credited to my account? It comes through a knowledge of Him. Know Him. Learn of Him. Sit at His feet. Love Him. Trust Him. Look to Him. Gaze upon Him. That's where your hope is found. Friends, study Christ. Strive to be His disciple. Learn of Him. He will justify you and make you perfect in the sight of God. Oh, don't you see? It is Christ's delight to give His righteousness to sinners. This is not something we twist God's arm to complete. God rejoices when a sinner repents. Christ rejoices when all He accomplished by His righteousness all the way to Calvary is given to the sinner. 1 Corinthians 1.30 He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness. As the New King James puts it, who became for us Righteousness. He became or was made. That has the idea of progression. And isn't that exactly what we find in the Word? He obeyed progressively. Isn't that what Hebrews teaches us? He learned submission. It's not as though His submission was ever imperfect. 
it just became fuller and fuller through the, the vastness of His suffering. Oh, His obedience was tested to the uttermost. Severely tested by Satan. Severely tested in the garden. Sweating even as it were great drops of blood. All the way to the cross. He learned obedience to the fullest. He accomplished all righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Just let these words sink in. This has got to be one of the... I know a lot of people love John 3.16 and it, it is to be loved. But this alongside it is one of the most glorious texts in all of the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin. Christ knew not one sin and God made Him to be sin. That, folks, is the negative imputation. That is Christ being made our sin. He knew no sin. We knew sin. Our sins laid on Him. He became sin and drank the wrath of God for it. And then the second half of this shows the imputation of His righteousness to us. So that in Him, and it's always in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. He became sin. We knew no righteousness. We become the righteousness of God. And I want to emphasize this again. It doesn't just say that we become righteous. It says we become the righteousness of God. This is a glorious fact. A wonderful privilege. We poor sinners in Christ become the righteousness of God. Do you realize God sees no sin in any one of His people? No iniquity in Israel when He looks upon them in Christ. In ourselves, He sees filthiness, wretchedness, and abomination. But in Christ, nothing but purity and righteousness. We'll tell you, if you're here today and you're lost, this is our most glorious privilege that we have. That we are in Christ. Our Beloved is ours. And being in Him, we own His righteousness. The Apostle Paul saw this to be gotten at the expense of everything else in life. He accounted everything else to be refuse and dung. That he might have Christ and that he might have a righteousness that doesn't come from the law, but a righteousness that's found in Him. That comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. When I stand in my own place, I'm lost. When I stand in my own place, I'm ruined. 
If you stand in your own place today, you stand in the place of Judas. You stand in the place of the devil himself. A place of condemnation. But if you stand in Christ's place, the Father's everlastingly beloved One, the Father's accepted One, Him whom the Father delights to honor. When I stand there, when you stand there, when we stand there, it's in the most joyous spot that a creature of God can occupy. And Christian, if you are saved, that is the place you occupy now in Him. He wore a crown of thorns for us and in Him, folks, we wear a crown of glory and a crown of righteousness. He wore my nakedness. And right now we rejoice with Isaiah. We've been robed with a robe of righteousness. He bore my shame and I bear His honor. Folks, as we wrap things up today, just turn in your Bibles to Romans 5. I'm not going to belabor this and obviously far, far, far more (coughs) could be said about it and should be said about it. When you come to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul has been dealing for chapters with this doctrine of justification. A righteousness that comes to us in Christ. He's been speaking of a righteousness of God that is for believers. He's been telling us that we are justified or declared righteous through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. He's told us that this justification comes through even the resurrection of Christ. It's through the work of Christ and through the instrumentality of faith. And as he wraps up his discussion about it, he comes to this great truth that indeed this righteousness of God comes to us by way of the merit of the obedience of Christ. That is his last climactic conclusion, statement, and teaching, doctrine, as he wraps up this teaching on justification in chapter 5. And the way he does it is to take Christ and in all of His perfections and His glory and what He accomplished for His covenant people. And He compares Him side by side with Adam. And in doing so, what He wants us to see is how glorious Christ is. Because when you compare, it's easy to bring out. Well, it's easy to compare and contrast. It's it's easier when you compare to show that certain things are vividly a reality. Like, for instance, I could have Papa come up in front of you right now and you could say, okay, well, what do you, what do you notice about him? What do you see about him? You know, write down your descriptions. 
But then if I brought Joshua up and I stood him next to his grandpa and I said, okay, now tell us some of, some of your other descriptions. Now, you know, finish your list. Do it all over again. It's likely that you would have more details than you had before simply because now with Joshua standing at his side, you can look at him and you can say, well, he's bigger than Joshua and he's balder than Joshua and he's older than Joshua. Before you might have said, well, you know, here's, here's a man and he has a red shirt on. And, but now comparing him to Joshua, you can notice other things to be true about him. And that's, that's basically what we do when, when we compare things. It brings out somewhat vividly certain aspects of... So read with me here. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now stop right here. Notice how he starts this. Just as. If you go down to verse 18, notice, therefore, as. You see how he starts with that? As. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So, one act of righteousness. You see how he's comparing there? As, so. He does that again in 19. For as, you move down a little bit, so by the one. That's how we compare, right? As this, so this. There's a comparison. Well, notice in verse 12, that's what he begins to do. Just as... But he never gets to the conclusion. He stops midway. Before he brings his comparison in, he stops dead in his tracks and heads off in a different direction. Now, there's a reason for that, and I want you to look at it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Now, you would expect the comparison to go something like this. So... Just as righteousness came into the world through one man, being Christ, and life through that righteousness, and so life spread to all men because all are righteous. That would be the comparison, but he stopped. And why did he stop? Because he just said something. Because all sinned. Paul realized this. He just opened himself up to be misunderstood. And he wants to clarify exactly what he means by all have sinned. Because notice what he's saying. He is saying one man sinned. By one man that sin came into the world. Death through that sin. And so death because of that sin spread to all men because all sinned. Now what does he mean? Does he mean all sinned themselves? Because they all have committed their own individual acts of sin? Or does he mean that all have sinned in Adam. He means not that we've all sinned personally. He means we've all sinned in Adam. You see, Adam was a representative head of all mankind. And when Adam sinned, all sinned in Adam. How do I know that's what he means? Because he goes on to explain to us that that's exactly what he means. Notice. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
What he says here, when was the law given? 400 years before Christ, right? The law was given to Moses. However, from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, what was true in the world? People died. People sinned, but it says because there was no law, the sin wasn't imputed to them. If sin is not imputed, it's not accounted to you. And yet people still died. Why did they die? Because they're in Adam. They're attached to Him. And listen to me, folks. During that same time frame, you know who else died? Not just adults who didn't have the law. There were children that died in their mother's womb who never actively made a decision for right or wrong. They died. Why? Because in Adam, all have sinned. In Adam, all are condemned. In Adam, all die. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. They sinned. It wasn't according to the transgression of Adam, who, you know, that transgression was against the command of God that said, in the day you eat thereof, you shall die. Other people sinned, but it wasn't against any given law. There wasn't any death penalty. And therefore, it wasn't accounted to them. And yet they still were condemned. They still died. And they were still judged of God as guilty. Why? Because the guilt of Adam has passed on to all of Adam's children. And listen to these words, and this is really the hinge of this whole portion of Scripture. Who was a type of the one who was to come. Do you know what a type is? A type is a representative figure. of some, It's a pre-shadowing. There's similarities there. You can make some comparisons. And what is happening here is Paul is not only comparing, he's contrasting. Adam is... A type of Christ. In fact, so much so that Paul calls Christ what in, in 1 Corinthians? The last Adam. He's the second Adam. How is he the second Adam? Folks, we're looking at the two most important men that have ever lived in the history of mankind. Because they are the two men who represent all men. And here we find the glory as they are contrasted and compared. Whereas in Adam, his one act of disobedience, and I don't want to speak for Paul. I'm going to let him speak for himself. Look with me at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, did you get that? Through Adam's trespass, many died. But much more, now we find the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. What's the free gift? Down in verse 17 it says, it's the free gift of righteousness. It's what we've been talking about all along. 
the free gift of righteousness. You know what gift Adam gave you? Unrighteousness. You are counted guilty in Him. In Christ, the free gift of righteousness. Verse 16, and the free gift is not like, the free gift again is righteousness. It's not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift of righteousness following many trespasses brought justification. Sinner, if we have that lost person in here that says, but I'm just too wicked to be accepted. Do you see what it says? The free gift of righteousness is for those. Well, let me say it like he says it. The free gift of righteousness follows many trespasses. And it brings justification. You don't have more than many trespasses. At most, you have many. And on the heels of the many trespasses, there is brought justification. How? This righteousness of Jesus Christ is so sufficient, so adequate, no matter how deeply you have been involved in sin. Verse 17, If because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, and here, we find this righteousness of Christ and the obedience of Christ that is imputed to the believer brought forth as plainly probably as anywhere in all the Scriptures. Therefore, as one trespass, that's the sin of Adam, led to condemnation for all men. So, one act of righteousness. Now you see there's a footnote there in our ESVs The one is actually following righteous. And in the King James or New King James, it says the righteousness of one. There really is no one act of righteousness that you can pinpoint in Christ's life that we would say, well, that's that's what's credited to us. Because even if you limited it down to his death or his suffering, what one act would you limit it to? What one moment in the three hours he suffered under the wrath of his father? Yeah, the, the same term here is used over in Romans 8.4 that means all righteousness. The fullness of the righteous. The, the entire spectrum of what righteousness is required. This is the fullness of it. And isn't that exactly how he put it to John the Baptist? All righteousness needs to be fulfilled. That's what you have here. The righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And obviously he means all men who are in Christ. Not all men universally, because many do not find life. 19, for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. When you guys that our Christians go into the Gospels and you see Christ constantly and thoroughly. He came to do His Father's will. 
And as you see Him working that out, He is earning an obedience for His people. The righteousness God requires that we could not supply, that we could not perform, it was accomplished in the life and deeds and doings of the Son of God. A perfect obedience to the law of God to which nothing at all can be added. You can go home and look at yourself in the mirror and you can go and try to reform your life and you can go and try to fix things and you can try to get your life right. You can try to prepare yourself to be presentable to God. You can try to do that for 10,000 years and you will still be vile and defiled still. It's not looking at yourself. It's not fixing up your own life that brings acceptance with God. It's nothing but the glorious perfections of the Son of God who is the delight of God. The Son in whom the Father does take great glory. It's in Him and Him alone that you will be accepted. There is a glory. Oh, we miss it so often. If God would only give us greater ability to see as we behold Christ in the pages of Scripture, as He walks, as He lives, as He breathes, as He sweats, as He takes steps upon those dusty trails, as He stands by the seaside, as He talks and speaks with sinners and with His disciples, there is a glory. There is a perfection. There is an obedience. There is, there is such as we cannot behold any other place. A progressive obedience. He earned it. He bled and died for it. And you know what? I have it. I have it. I didn't always have it. But God gave it to me. And it's for believers. And I believed. And I found it to be for me. And if you will believe, you will find it to be for you as well. I was reading to the children this morning a story from maybe 150 years ago. Family moved over from Scotland. They bought a farm. The father died almost right away. The woman was very godly. She began to pray and cry out to the Lord and neighbors helped her. And her son grew up fast and strong and they never lost the farm. And that mother, she taught her son biblical principles and the son began to become wayward, ran off, spent time with a boy from the neighborhood that was not brought up in a godly way. She warned that boy and through her tears prayed for him and she died. He tried to forget everything he knew about God. He ended up in prison. Some godly old pastor would go off in a sleigh in the wintertime 
out into these lumber yards where they would take the prisoners to work, some of them who they thought were worthy of being let out of the prison to go do this kind of labor. And he went out there and he preached the Gospel. And this boy was in the crowd. And it, this old preacher told his testimony and he told how when he was young he despised the teachings of a godly mother and she died and he ran off into sin. And it was the same story that he lived. The next morning as that old boy was leaving on his sleigh that young boy ran out to him and said, Is what you said last night true? Does it really not matter how many sins we've committed? That righteousness of Christ sufficient? He said, Because if it's not, I'm going to go to hell. That old pastor said to him, Son, if it's not, we're all going to hell. And he started off down the lane. And as he came to a turn in it, he glanced back and he saw that boy on his knees with his arms extended to heaven. That preacher said he didn't have to turn around and go back to find out how it was with that boy's soul. He knew already. You know how he knew? He had absolute, utter confidence that any repentant sinner that reaches out to God will be accepted. And that's what Scripture teaches us. And I want to tell you this. By the very merit and righteousness of Jesus Christ, God has put Himself in a place where He must accept everyone that comes to Him in faith. But it's not as though we have to twist His arm. It is God the Father Himself who set forth Christ to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearer for our sins. We folks, Christians, brothers and sisters, we have the most glorious message on the face of the earth. Nothing tops this. There's a lot of preachers that top the one that's speaking to you. I don't doubt that. But not a greater message. Not by far. It is the most profound, most beautiful, the most glorious, the most hope-giving message that mankind has ever heard. A righteousness not my own. How does this songwriter say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Father, we thank You for it. Lord, I rejoice that I can say He is mine and His righteousness is mine and I have been made the righteousness of God in Him. Lord, we will glory in that truth forevermore throughout eternity and throughout the ages. We thank You for it in Christ's name. Amen.